Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today we'll be continuing our series, Transforming. We hope you enjoy. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. I have two more messages this morning and next week on this transforming series. I could go on and on. Uh, because the Bible has so much to say, but uh, we're going to stop for Christmas and uh, let that be enough for now. Uh, I think we've had a rich time exploring the idea of what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ. Uh, But this morning, as we come to Peter, we're going to get a different flavor of this whole idea of transformation It's not the flavor of the Apostle Paul. Even the language, as you'll see, is different. And I've broken this message up into two parts, so you have to come back next week uh, to get part two. And in part two, you're going to see seven virtues that, that Peter challenges us by faith to incorporate into our lives, which is a great challenge for 2019 to not be sitting back on our skis, but actually leaning forward and in learning what God has for us regarding seven parts of the image of, of Christ. If you were to take uh, a light and shine it through the prism, it breaks it down into colors. And so if you would take that and shine it through uh, the image of Christ, you would see these different virtues coming out. And, and they're not the only things that we can add to our lives, but there's seven primary virtues, and you're welcome. It's in the Bible, so you can read ahead. It's right there and see what those things are. And uh, when you come back next week, you realize they're probably more profound than you thought they were. But for this morning, we're going to just take verses three and four and, and look at this big, big, big idea of transforming into the image of Christ one more time. What I love about Peter is Peter's a guy that I think most of us would agree we can relate to. Uh, You and I are not attracted to people who are perfect. We may idolize them for a little bit, uh, but we're especially attracted to people who have flaws, uh, who are not perfect, but are honest and humble uh, to admit their imperfections. And Peter (laughs) just has the whole gamut right in front of us. There's no other apostle other than the apostle Paul that we know so much about. We know the day that he met Jesus. We know the very day. Uh, And then we know the the second day where, where Jesus actually performs a miracle of causing Peter as a fisherman to catch a bunch of fish. And Peter comes to shore, falls on his knees and says, get out of here. I am a sinful man. I cannot be around you. And you think, whoa, that is an introduction to a relationship. And yet we see the other end of Peter's life where he says, you know what, not to brag, but I must say that if all of them deny you, I'll be the guy. I'm just that guy, Jesus, that will never deny you. And Jesus says, truly, is that right, Peter? Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then we see it regarding his whole life is written in the gospel. It's in the Bible. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So his life is really more like the stock market uh, with ups and downs, hopefully getting better and better. 
And that's your life, and that's, your, that's my life. So we can relate to this guy, Peter. But Peter now, towards the end of his life, he looks back and he summarizes some of what it means to be transformed. And so we come to this verse 3, and you're going to be stunned, no doubt, by the language that we see here. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Lord, we pray that you would come to us by your divine power this morning and illumine our minds and hearts and and cause us to learn what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So he says, God's spirit has given us everything for our transformation, right? Literally, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. What I love about this verse is the emphasis on the word everything. Everything. God has not held back anything for your transformation for your sanctification, for him making you who he wants you to be. He has not held back anything. And that dispels a myth that I think in a latent form exists in the modern church. And that is that God is held back. It's very similar to the first temptation. The reason you can't eat of this fruit is God just doesn't want you to know that you can be like him, knowing good and evil. Uh, God's holding out on you. And that was the temptation that the snake posed to the first couple. And we have this idea in our minds that I could be amazing if it wasn't for God. That God has held some things back for me. He kind of gives things out to me like manna. I'm trying to get to be a better husband. I'm trying to be more amazing as a wife. But I'm me and I came from this background. And it's all I can be. And this is how he made me. And this is just who I, I can be. So even though we don't say it, we infer that it's, it's God's fault that I am not more than what I am today. Without discounting the influence of genes, without discounting the influence on environment and how we've been raised, without discounting the incidence of peers in our lives and, and all the other things in personality profiles and all the other things that, that make you you, what the Bible says is God is not holding back anything and he's given you everything. Whoa, game on. So what does that mean? Well, that's the Christian life, my friends, for us to discover. 
that he really can do something with my temper. He really can do something with my lust. He really can do something with my greed. And I don't have to be what environment and my peers and, and social media say I have to be, that he's granted to me everything. So a great starter. In, in the Greek, uh, when you want to emphasize a word or a phrase, the Greeks had an option that you and I largely don't have. Um, if you're dyslexic, you have this. <laughs> you read words backwards and all of that kind of stuff, and I have a little bit of that in me, so I know. But uh, with the Greeks, if you want to emphasize a word or a thought, you can slap it at the front of the sentence, and then the reader knows what's most important to the writer. You and I have this protocol that no, 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 you got to have the subject, then you have to have the verb, and then you have to have the direct object, and it has to go in that order, we're going to grade you down. What if you could just cut all the words up, put them in a, a little cup, shake them up, throw them out, and every time we knew what you wanted to say? That's Greek. <laughs> because it's prefixes and suffixes that tell you the order. And then you could slap at the front of the sentence anything you wanted to to say, you would end up talking like Yoda. <laughs> Chair sitting, you know. You, you, whatever you wanted to say, you could just emphasize, well, that's what this word is, and it's everything. That's what Peter wants you to know. As a Christian, nothing could be more encouraging at the end of this year and coming in, that, that the sky's the limit. Yeah, let's do this thing. And, and he's, so he encourages us with this idea of everything. And then he says that his divine power has given us this. So it's the divine power that has given us everything. In what is the divine power? Twice Peter uses clearly Gentile language because he's now a missionary ministering cross-culturally, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. If it was just to Jews, he would have said the Holy Spirit. But because part of his audience are new Gentiles who have come to faith, he says the divine power. You and I have to use that language often in our culture today. We, one of the examples is we say people of faith. You know, and it's a way of us softly introducing and talking about the subject of our Christianity. Well, he uses the word divine uh, power, but he's pointing back to the Holy Spirit. But the emphasis is power, this dunamis, this power that comes from the Holy Spirit is for us. And as I've said before, there is no transformation without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is there giving you all the tools to change. And the word given is an important word to take note. And that is that it's in the perfect tense, which means that it's been given at a point of time in the past with continuing result in the present. What a cool word. Why can't we have those words in English? Well, we actually do, but we rarely use them or understand them that way. But the perfect tense means that at your conversion, you received what the Holy Spirit had for you, and the Holy Spirit is continuing to give you. Whatever you need, 
Here I am today to give you exactly what you need. And what he's giving us is life and godliness. Your translation, I think, has godly life, which is uh, a good economy of words by the NIV translators. But there's actually, in the original, two words that are separate by an and. And one is zoe. Some of you name your daughter Zoe. It's that word, zoe. And the other is godliness, which has to do with godlikeness. So he's given us everything that pertains to you living zoe and godlikeness. Or you might bring it together to not just the godly life, or what I like to call it, the god life. And there it is, the God life. That's what God has in mind for you. Isn't that interesting? To think of your transformation as the God life. Unfortunately, with sanctification, that word caused us to often emphasize what you need to stop doing. And we'll read about that in a moment. There are certain things we need to stop doing that are detrimental to your life or lives around you. But the God life, can you imagine that you have been invited and given everything, all the tools to come into the God life? If you, as you've heard me say so many times, if you're ever on a crowded elevator and you need room, and you, they say, how is your day going? You just say, wonderful, I'm living the God life. They'll just back off and give you all, all the room on the elevator that you need. Because it sounds preposterous. It sounds almost audacious, almost blasphemous to say that you're living the God life. But here's something to think about. Oftentimes, we diminish what it means to be a Christian, Someone asks you, what does it mean? And you say, well, it means you're forgiven. It does mean that. Christ died on the cross for your sins and my sins. And if you believe on him, you are forgiven. But it means more. Well, yeah, it means you're forgiven, but it also means you're going to heaven. And I would ask, is that it? You're forgiven so you can go to heaven so that you can chip gold out of the streets, pocket it, so that you can have an open house in your mansion in the sky and prove that it's nicer than all the other mansions in the sky. No, 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 no. You're forgiven so you can go to heaven so that you can live forever. And I said, that's it? So... You enjoy twiddly winks, uh, you know, you, you enjoy whatever, and you're just going to do that forever? Well, no, 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 you're not just going to live forever. It, you will, I don't know, ride down the necks of giraffes, you may uh, ride a rhinoceros, it'll be amazing, that's it? See, I would suggest that most Western Christians have never thought about the end goal. The end goal is that you would live the God life. 
drinking of the love of God, sharing with others of the love of God in a way that is so profound that it excites us and amazes us for eternity. And that's why we need to be forgiven. And that's why heaven, and that's why uh, the, the, the propagation of the gospel. We want everybody to come in to this God life. And so he goes on to say that this whole idea and the power and the substance of all of this comes from God's own glorious, from the, through the knowledge of him who called us, could be translated summoned or invited us by his own glory and goodness. So it's out of God's own glory and goodness that he summoned, invited, called us into this God-like life. Wow. You know, if we took a silent poll here and asked, how many of you have ever heard this before? Uh, I would dare say it would be something like 12%. It's just like, I never thought about this before. Other, the other 12% would say, I think the pastor's a cult leader. <laughs> and then the rest would say, he's just on drugs. <laughs> because it sounds so preposterous. It's, it's amazing. But when I read this from Peter, I think, I signed up for that. This is what I signed up for. This spirit-influenced life that's bigger than me. Let me tell you a story about a man named Michelangelo. Michelangelo, born in the late 1400s, overlapping with another name you know very, very well, Leonardo da Vinci, who was like, 20 years older than Michelangelo, but served on the committee that oversaw Michelangelo in one of his projects. Isn't that fun to think about? But the story goes like this. Around 1464, a man was commissioned to sculpt a statue of David. And they pulled down this eight-ton slab of marble, and Ducio is his name, sorry for those of you that speak Italian, forgive me for butchering uh, the word. After a few months, he gave up on the project because of the imperfections of the marble. The imperfections are called Tiroli. So then 10 years later, they employ another guy by the name of Rosalini to take over the project. And he sculpts a little bit of the legs of David and gives up on the project because of Tiroli, the imperfections in the marble. It's beneath me. I can't do I won't do it because of the imperfections. It may chip, it may crack, and I'll work all this time and, and it won't turn out the way I want it to turn out. So this slab of marble, eight tons of brick white marble sits in the open for 25 years, now we're to 1502, and this consortium of this new cathedral that is being built, they want seven figures to stand on top of the buttresses of this cathedral, and one of them needs to be David, and we need to re-engage some sculptor to sculpt David. 
and they employ the most famous and the wealthiest sculptor of the day who was only 26 years old, Michelangelo, to do it. And the question is, what will Michelangelo do? Well, I'm here to tell you he gave everything for the project. He withheld nothing for the project. And he went at it like a madman. He, he pulled the slab of marble into this courtyard. He barricaded the whole courtyard so that no one could enter it. No one could see what he was doing. It was in, in complete secrecy. All they would do is give him all the tools he needed, all the food and the water he needed, and he just worked. Sometimes he'd work in the middle of the night. He'd be inspired. Sometimes he'd work uh, in the daytime. And sometimes he'd work in the rain. And he gave everything for the project of seeing David emerge from this slab of marble. And what he created ended up amazing everyone. I could say you have to come back to hear what he did, but I'll tell you in just a moment. And that's how God works on you. He sees who you were supposed to be. He sees the things that happened to you. It's too bad. He sees the story, what you and I would call the imperfections of our lives, and that's why I was gonna be amazing, and, but I'm not now because of this and this and this. He sees it all. And he throws everything at you to make you the person that he wanted you to be in the beginning. And God's gonna win in your life. So we read on in verse four where we learn that the big idea is not just that he's given everything for you, but the divine nature is in us. Verse four, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world by evil desires. So he says, through these, what are these? Well, he's going back to what he just said about God at the end of of uh, the previous verse where he says, uh, who called us by his own glory and goodness. So that these are his own glory and goodness. So through these, his goodness and his glory, he has given us great and precious promises. The word of God, he's given us promises of hope. And this world desperately needs hope. He's given us promises of hope that you will become someone other than you, what you are right now. And it's based on the promises of the word of God and the nature of God. And here it is, that so that, meaning with the result of all of this, the result is you get to participate in the divine nature. Say what? I mean, that phrase, participating in the divine nature, almost sounds Eastern philosophy. It's like Eastern philosophy, or, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the out-of-bounds line of orthodoxy here, Peter, and you're not saying we become God, are you? No. There is a God, 
and that position is filled, so relax. You'll never be God. Thank God. (laughs) But you get to participate in the divine nature. Here again is a Gentile phrase uh, that's borrowed by a Jew to describe something that we have probably minimized. When you and I use the phrase, the image of God, the Imago Dei, I would say that even though that's a very profound concept, in our own minds, we kind of flatten it out to a two-dimensional thing. We say, like, well, what does it mean to be the image of God? Well, it means that you've been given, you need to reflect God. What does that mean, reflect God? Well, it means that you've been given responsibility over the, the earth and over the, the animals and everything that crawls and all the creepy things that crawl. You, you are supposed to reflect God to the rest of the world. What does that mean? Well, it means to, you're supposed to be salt and light to the world. All the things I've told you. But do you see how flat that is? It's, 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 it's all true, but it's, it's a job description without substance. But when you think of participating in the divine nature, it almost feels like I'm having a conversation with the Trinity. The word participate is the word koinonia in the verb form, koinonoi. Now that's really getting scary, isn't it? So it can be translated to share, to have fellowship with the divine nature. Yowzers. And that's what the Imago Dei also means. That's what our eternity is all about. Because God is this infinite person that's love beyond love that we we get to know more and more and more about. We get to drink of the nature of God, the character of God, and it begins to ooze through our being. You know, they say, uh, you are what you eat. And after Thanksgiving, we're all in trouble. (laughs) I can just tell you. If that is true of me, and it's probably true, but could it spiritually be true? We are what we drink, that we get to drink, participate, absorb the divine nature, and that's who we are becoming. Thank you, Peter. This brings so much hope to all of us. Then he says, having escaped the corruption that's in the world caused by evil desires. Folks, I'm here to say evil desires are harmful to you. When we allow a normal desire, how be it eating, how be it uh, just wanting to watch TV, how be it wanting to... uh, um, enjoy sports, our sexuality, whatever it happens to be, success, when that desire becomes the desire that dwarfs everything else, we call that either addiction or we call that desire 
a lust. Normally, we channel lust to just sexuality, but in, in, in the Bible, lust refers to a super desire, a, a desire that's gone cancerous. And it, 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 it outgrew its boundaries. And the Bible is saying that you and I have ex- escaped those things. Phew! Like Lot escaping Sodom and Gomorrah. Whoo! That was close. You know? Uh, but you've ex- escaped those things because the tentacle of those things wanted to harm you or wanted to harm the people around you. But now, as we have escaped those things and continue to escape those things. We didn't escape them just to escape them. That would be a wrong view of sanctification. We have escaped them to participate in the divine nature. And Peter begins to unpack this that we'll have to come back next week to see what those virtues are. There's a great story that C.S. Lewis tells us. Uh, It's the fourth of the books of Narnia. By the way, did you know that the first four books of Narnia were all written before the first one was published? It's kind of cool. He saw this grand story, and and, uh, only after he wrote the the book, The Horse and His Boy, uh, that he connected with the publisher and the publisher obviously said you're C.S. Lewis of course we want it and uh, then he wrote the rest of the three to complete the series but the interesting thing about the horse and his boy is it's entirely outside of Narnia (laughs) the book is and all the characters in the story are outside of the characters of Narnia It's, it's all on the peripheral uh, and they end up in this land that's on the border of Narnia called Archenland. But there's this boy, the horse and his boy. This boy has grown up in a foreign country under a, an abusive fisherman. And he really doesn't know where he came from. He doesn't know his origin. He just knows that this guy is a jerk. And if he could ever escape, he would. And finally comes the day as a grown young man that he escapes and he begins this journey. And if, I'm sorry, I'm ruining it for you if you haven't read the story. But at the end of the story, he discovers that he's royalty. That at birth, he and his lookalike twin brother were separated. His brother grew up as a prince in Archenland, and he grew up as a pauper. as a slave in another country. And now they discover each other, they look alike, and he's the long-lost brother. But of the identical twins, he was the firstborn, and so he's actually the heir to the throne. And his brother's relieved to know that he doesn't have to be king, and now he can be anything he wants to be. And and this, this slave boy discovers he's truly a king. And folks, I think you and I live in an identity crisis. We have no idea who we are. We have no idea the royal blood that flows in our veins because of Jesus Christ. And we're just kind of getting by. But if we knew, if we could see, and here it is, Peter hinting at it one more time that you are the son and the daughter of the living king, and you have been called to participate in the divine nature 
And yes, reflect him. Yes, be forgiven. But enjoy the nature of God himself and exude that to the people around you. So coming back to Michelangelo, he works for for two years giving everything to this slab. And for a long time at first, he studies the slab because he, he wants to discover David. And it means not only studying the marble and the characteristics of the marble so that these imperfections don't crack, but it also means going back to Samuel and rediscovering who David really is, right? All the Davids that up until this point had been sculpted were identical. And guess what they were? It was the conquering David over Goliath. So you don't have to use your imagination much to imagine that. It it meant David having his right foot on top of, of Goliath, who's beheaded, and either his head laying there or David holding his head as the conqueror, this boy conqueror. And everyone sculpted David just that way. But I would ask you, is that, is that all we know about David? If you read the stories of David, is that all we know? Who was David? And that's what Michelangelo wanted to know. How do I know who David was and sculpt that for the world to see? Because that's who you are. You're not just the product of your parents. You're not just the product of social media and all these precious. It's, it's who you are that God is creating. And so he sculpted David as no one had ever seen David before. I've just given you just a glimpse of a slide of his face so you could, you could see it. But... Um, it's, it's amazing. You can go to Florence tomorrow and see it. It's amazing. But what's amazing is he sculpted the David before Goliath. He sculpted the David that's looking at Goliath, who has in his left hand the top of a sling, and the rest of the sling wraps around his back, and his right hand, where you can see the veins in his hand, is holding the bottom of the sling, and there's a rock there. So the event hasn't happened yet. He hasn't conquered Goliath yet. And Michelangelo would tell us that's who David is. He was a conqueror before he met Goliath. And why was he a conqueror? Because who he's looking at is not just Goliath. The people that have studied the eyes of David have realized they're actually not looking at the same thing, that one is supposed to be looking at Goliath and the other is looking beyond Goliath. Now, the Renaissance person would say that's because Michelangelo believed in being a thinking man. But you and I would say, no, no, that's because David believed in God. He saw who his victory was. It was in God. So he's actually looking at the difficulty and seeing the victory beyond Goliath. And that's what's happening. And Michelangelo saw it in the slab of marble. And that's the genius of the moment, even that Leonardo da Vinci 
agreed that this sculpture was perfect. So it could not go on the buttress of a cathedral. It needed to replace the pagan statue in the town square and become the guardian statue of Florence because our trust is also in God. Uh, and that's how we're protected. And Michelangelo saw that in a slab. Well, what that does is it gives me hope, my friends, that God sees behind all the, the imperfections and all the things, but he sees who you really are when you believe in him. And he's going to depict that. So when I see you in heaven, and you'll be amazing. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that we've never met a mere human. That if we saw a human completely transformed, we'd be tempted to worship him or her. So I think that's, that's the truth. If we saw each other as we are. But what we'll see in each other is our profound trust and love in a God who loves us. And show that. To us through Jesus Christ. And we're forever smitten. And that's what makes you big. That's what makes you reflect the image of God. Next week, the seven virtues. Uh, what you and I do, if you said to me this morning, Mark, what's my role in this? I would say, read ahead and uh, see what God has for us. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your truth, your word. And God, we, we give you full permission as you have given us everything through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, that you would do your work in our lives, particularly as we come to the end of this new year and anticipate 2019. God, do your work in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.